0: For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com Hi, it's a Friday afternoon, not too long for Shabbos actually, and I'm going to try to do the next um, talk on the Summon Bonum, which is, as always, being sponsored by Mishpah Savansky. Um, thank you, and... Uh, now we moved past uh, the Gonim and Shlomo Gabirol and uh, Yehud we get to the Rambam, which is, I think, the most well-known, but perhaps uh, misunderstood, I don't know. Uh, and the Rambam is very um, long and complicated. So what I'm going to do today is do part one as best as I can, uh, because I think that rather than try to rush everything into one package, um, the Rambam, of course, was a, a philosopher. But in the Middle Ages, that means that he's trying to think about um, uh, spirituality, things like that, religion, in a rational way. There's always a tiny, you don't know, because, you know, the application of rational thought to the area of the metaphysical is not necessarily a uh, sound enterprise. This was the famous critique of the philosophical approach to religion, already by Yehuda Levi, uh, that is true. But in spite of that, the Rambam done the Greek. and therefore, when you're talking about things like life after it has Mashiach, things of that nature, <gasps> excuse me, uh, the Rambam was quite interested in this. But a plot, but you're talking about someone. Who, of course, he was a genius, obviously, and is bringing to bear several different intellectual influences. First and foremost, he was a from guy. So the problem, though, as we've sort of seen, and becomes very blatant in the Rambam's writings, is that the Torah, certainly the Chazal, have no doctrine on the summum Bonum. Uh, you find different opinions in different ways. And to the Rambam, the rabbis and the Gemara were greatest, among the greatest people, and they certainly had halachic authority, but that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they said, because you can't. Some are contradictory. One rabbi says, This happens to you after death. and Another one said, That one does. And they certainly seem like they're quite, they're, they're arguing. Uh, and if they're arguing, then I don't have to say all of them are right. You just have to say, At the, 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 at the most, we don't know which one's right. Of course, you can always try to mimiash of them. I'm simply trying to show you that he comes from a tradition which he's trying to think logically but it becomes very difficult to stitch together as philosophers try to do out of all the different uh, statements and frameworks you find in the vast Torah literature a philosophy which is consistent. And there's no point if it's not consistent, internally consistent, and logical and otherwise, uh, you know, there's no point in trying to say what Judaism has to say on the subject. Now the Gaonim, as I tried to tell you, kind of did that in their own way. What I mean is... uh, Sadi Gon, for example, Haigon, and so forth. There are all these different pasukim. Nothing explicit. There's all these different chazals. Nothing clear. And in spite of that, the Gaonim that I listed for you, these famous quotes, uh, picked and chose and stitched together different sukim into a single narrative. So those are Haigon, for example. So I guess when the Pasuk says it means at this point, when the psukim says there'll be a war, it means at that point. When the psukim says there'll be a famine, it's at a third point. And he argued, it's an intellectual argument. I'm using the word argument in the intellectual sense, not in the sense of I'm arguing with you, like a, an argumenting two people, but advancing an intellectual argument. So he argued that the different psukim can be put together in a certain way to come up with a final narrative and to give you an idea of what the Messianic era will be like, and, as we saw with the Gonim, not so clear an idea of what the Summon Bono be like, life after death. But, you know, some general ideas, which which have to do with the fact that, you know, to be an Olam Haba, and um, the world as we know it today will cease to exist at one time or another. I as mean, the basic foundation. Now, um, the Rambam did not agree with their interpretation. He says so in a number of places. In fact, there used to be a book years ago when I was a kid, HaRambam HaGonim. I forget by who, maybe by Chavetzalit or somebody, in which he you know, went to the whole point of studying all the differences of opinion. In Halacha and agoda between the Rambam on the one hand, the Gonim on the other. The Rambam held from the Goni, but he didn't give them the kind of authority that, you know, if the Gonim said it, that's the end of the discussion. That's not the uh, Torah tradition out of which the Rambam came, which is from the Rif and the Rimigash and all that sort of thing. It's quite a different tradition. So, and the old famous gun were already two hundred years old, hundred and fifty years old. And it's in the nature of rabbinic charisma that during the lifetime of a great gadol, he's like unchallengeable. But after his death and generations go by, it's more challengeable, you know. Uh in other words, when Ramosha Feinstein was alive, if he said something, even if somebody said they don't agree with it or this, that and the other, it didn't matter because he's Ramosha Feinstein. Uh he had that authority. Or if you want the Vilna go When the Villagon is alive, if he says something, that's the end of the discussion. Later on, it becomes simply one sheet of others. You know, to me, to, to, to the podcast audience I'm speaking today, if I said I'll tell you something from the Node of or even Rabbi Ki-Bager, you said, Oh, that's interesting, you know. It's not it's not decisive and final. It's it's an important sheet of right? I mean, uh, yeah, among the greatest people, but they're not the only word on the subject. Um but in their time they were to their to their followers. So, uh, the Rambam is coming at a time where the Gonim were already, you know, uh, sort of like distant memory, and their, their sheet is very important, but it's not unchallengeable. Now, that's true in the Halacha area, and anybody who studies the Mishnah Torah knows that's the Rambam's position in the Halachic area. Sometimes he goes like the Gonim and quotes them, Horu HaGonim, and sometimes he, he does differently. We in Spain do different uh, than Kalvachomer in the Agadeta area, in the area of Hashkofa in the area of theology, if I can do it. But theology is a Greek word which means that you try to make sense out of a whole bunch of different um, ideas and you try to construct a narrative, the theology, the, the science of God, you know. You try to understand what God is based on all kinds of different things. Now, the, the Torah and also the uh the, Havdo, the other you know religions, they never explain to you in what we would call a scientific kind of way like a textbook, what's the story with God and heaven and hell and so forth and so on? You just have stories and statements. So this is the problem for somebody like the Rambam, which is you have stories and statements, but you know, how do you put it together into the final Zah? Um, and what I'm trying to say is I don't get the impression when you read the Rambam that I could be wrong, of course, that um, you know he's simply giving over his Masoro. But rather the Rambam uh, thought it through that's certainly the impression that comes through to me. And gave a great deal of thought to it, by the way. Uh, a great deal of thought to it. And, um, precisely because he was a philosopher, as well as a god so, you know, his his logic, you know, he had this logical bent to him. And a logical person, Taka says, so what's the Salman Bonum? What's it all about? You know, what's, what's the Scharbonish? Uh, you want to know what it is? Um... Does that mean you should be a grubba young and do everything for Schar and onish? He has discussions about that, but you want to know what's the what's the master plan? Why am I doing? Why am I putting on filling every day? Why am I davening? Why am I doing anything over here? You know, it's it's a fair question to ask. Why, right now, you don't necessarily have an answer. So he makes his attempt to come up with the answers. Having said that, the Rambam, of course, has to be understood as somebody who wrote three big books and some other stuff. And in the course of these three books, he talks about a lot of his ideas, but he doesn't write a book totally dedicated to that idea, except when he was young. The Rambam, I think many know, wrote three three famous forms: A, B, and C. First, when he was young, he wrote the 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 Pirush on the Mishnayiz. and then when he, in his thirties, he wrote the Mishnah Torah, and in his forties, he wrote the Maor and then his his uh, medical career took off, bit, his medical practice, and he didn't have time to write any others for him, which is unfortunate for us. He has letters, and he wrote sometimes essays. He's, I think the only reason I can imagine, you know, uh, who has these, uh, you know, writes essays, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it doesn't come to mind. Uh, and essays, not drushes. And, um, you know, but basically those three books. Now, the Rambam, of course, is remarkable. But what I mean to say is he died at 65. So in his 50s and 60s, he didn't write it out of his form. He wrote letters, like I say, but not swarm. The letters of the Rambam are very, very interesting and very packed with stuff. They're very juicy, but in right's form. Now, um, the Sommabonim. The Rambam, you have to understand, uh, has a particular unusual history. He's not like the other uh, uh, Rishonim. I think many of you know this. The Rambam did not go to yeshiva. The Rambam grew up in a Muslim society after the age of 13, having to pretend that they're Muslims on the street. You know, uh, They did all their Yiddish and learning behind closed doors with the curtains drawn that the Goyim shouldn't find out. The Rambam lived like a Murano in his early years in Spain. So he was born in Cordoba in 1138, and like 12, 13 years later, the uh, Taliban took over to go the Almohads, and uh, they prohibited Judaism on pain of death. Uh, that's where the Rambam writes he cares eshemad, and the Rambam continued to live with his family in Spain and later in Morocco, which was held by this Taliban group by the Almohads. Uh, you know, like ISIS, you know that great type fundamentalist Islam, and unlike the earlier Islam, which allowed Judaism to be there in, in a um, uh, what's the right word. Provided you accept third-class status, the new uh, Islam wouldn't allow anything. You had to be a Muslim or else they'll kill you. So if the Rambam lived in that world, they had to fake it out. Now, that's like a Murano, you know. Now, um, you you couldn't be a Jew, not the Frahesia. On the other hand, they didn't have an Inquisition and things like this. So it's clear, uh, without going to too much Arichas, that the Rambam and his family moved from town to town, neighborhood to neighborhood, when, think, when people started getting suspicious about them. And over the course of that time, he did his learning. So, uh, and the Rambam was unusual. You know, he could set himself a schedule and stick to it and learn by himself. He learned with his father, and uh, who was a dying, the Talmud himself. But the Rambam was not growing up in Punavish or in Lucina in, in Spain or anything like this. He had no yeshivish uh, background whatsoever, which, which is why he's different. Moreover, the Rambam... Uh, when he had to pretend not to be Jewish. So, I mean, he did go to uh, Arab public school, or the equivalent thereof. And that means uh, that he had to learn not only uh, what we call limud yichol, secular subjects, which they had, I mean, like math and science and things like that, but he also had to learn religious subject which is Islam. And not not many people are aware of this, but uh, the Almohads had a whole very intense... A theological program to which they gave a great deal of thought. And uh, Sarah Strumza the professor, wrote a very good book, in my opinion, not too long ago, about the uh, Almohad uh, context in which the Rambam was forced to grow up. Had things been different, he would have had a different education. But he had to learn a lot. Of the, and in the Almohads, which is Almohad is unity, Wahad, you know, one. So it's the emphasis on Elud um uh, the Muslim uh, version of that. And uh, therefore that, that forces you to concentrate on these kind of uh, basics about God which is he's not Echad, he's not Gadol, he's not Gibor. You know, these are are classic uh type things. Plus they were already out there among the Jews as well. As you know, if you read Sadiqon, especially if you read the Chavos al Okay, now um, with all that, the Rambam uh obviously hated the having to live like that and he hates islam and all that but uh but he's influenced by it to be very um what's the right word thought out and uh, you know rigorous that's it rigorous um in uh approaching these subjects more than most abundant because usually in the yeshiva world in the frum world you're not rigorous in these things we're rigorous in, in Gemara and Halacha, you know, in Suggyas. We're not rigorous in heaven and hell. Most of us not rigorous in, in thinking through Scheibe uh, Most of us not rigorous in, you know, Yemosah Mashiach and life after death and all that kind of stuff. It is what it is. You know, you have general idea. It is what it is. The Rambam was kind of opposed to that and kind of drove him crazy. And he, that's what he says. That is what he says. Now, here's the thing. Um, so when he was he he he, he did the peshmishnayis, he tells us, starting age of sixteen. I hate people like that. They're geniuses, you know. Uh, think about it. He wrote peshmishnayis starting sixteen till approximately the age of thirty or so. So this is what the guy did in his free time. I mean, this literally when he was in his twenties, living in Spain and in Morocco. Um, wrote the peshmishnayis in Arabic. And then when he moved afterwards to Egypt, where they could come out of the closet and be openly from Jews, so uh, that's where he wrote the Mishnah Torah. This is in his 30s, before his medical practice began. So, uh, what did he do for a day job? He was Italian. Italian. So that's very helpful to write a Mishnah Torah, Agreed. I mean, not Carbonus and Tumantira, but you understand know something You're holding and learning 24-7. And that's what he did. Now... Anybody who knows anything about the writing of the Rambam knows that there are a fair number of subjects which the Rambam writes at great length in the Pirish Mishnais on the one hand, and then he puts it much more succinctly and in Hebrew in the Mishnah Torah, including things like the Soma Bonomi, Moshe and things of that nature. Uh, I might add that in addition to writing these two books, because that's what they were, they're books, they're sworn, Pirish this is a safer. Uh, in addition to that, the Rambam also wrote some of these uh, essays, including most famously the Geras Taman the letter at this time that he wrote to Yemen, where he also had to deal in a different context with um, messianic issues. Right? As a matter of fact, he was anti-messianic because they believed in a false Mashiach. That's what's going on in uh, the Geras Taman There he talks also a little bit about uh, the Mashiach, life after death, and things like that. Okay, now, therefore, and finally, writing for a different audience altogether, he has the Mornevuchim, where, as far as I'm aware, I'm not the world's expert in Mornevuchim. There are people who know less than me, but there are people who know more than me. Uh, he doesn't go too much, as far as I know, into uh, this idea of someone about him life after death, Onish, what's coming down the line, and all the rest of it. It's not really what well, was interesting to the audience that he was writing for in the muravukam they were more interested in like now when you're alive what he's supposed to believe What does Judaism hold to be the truth not Vosved vezain you know pine sky later on eh, i unless i'm missing something i don't believe he he does that now here and there he talks about it so mainly you're going to look at the perish Mishnais on the one hand the um the Mission of torah in certain places on the other Um uh, his remarks in the uh, Mishneh Torah and, and Perish Vishnayis led his critics to attack him on certain points of what he believes about life after death, Mesut um, but especially life after death. And he had replied to this in something called the Yeris Ches Mesim later in life. So these are the texts that are at play. So what I'm trying to say is like is the Rambam didn't write a book is that here's what I believe about what happens to you, but you have to pull it out from these places. Uh, so to my mind, uh, early in life, the Rambam, and again, growing up, he did not have a from education. He did not grow up in a from neighborhood. Uh, he grew up in a, in a Muslim neighborhood. You know, he I mean, he obviously knew fellow Jews. They also were pretending. See, so you, you, which Godal do we know that's like this? That, you know, grows up a Murano, so to speak. And and a gadol. I mean, we've had people in Moranos who escaped later on and became from Jews, but none of them like HaGadol Shabbat Gdolim the way the Rambam is, you know, such a seminal figure. So it's interesting, the Rambam has been such a major figure in yeshivish Judaism, and yet he wasn't yeshivish. And his biography is certainly not a yeshivish biography. And, in fact, in his lifetime, a lot of the irregular yeshiva types look at him skeptically. It's just, as part of the Maimonidean controversies, you know, uh, some came to respect them, some came to oppose him. But uh, you can understand where they would come from because they were coming from a very uh, from uh, semi Hasidic, in the case of Tosos, uh, you know, uh, background. And the Rambam, who was just as from as any of the others and maybe knew more, possibly knew more than them or whatever, came from a very different type of background and, and, and you know, propounded a different type of judaism sort of okay with all that background so i would say that you want to start with, with the realms discussion about what comes what, what's it all about alfie so uh you got to go to the pierce Mishnaiz, which he wrote basically in his late teens and 20s and <clears throat> pierce Mishnaiz is what it is it's a commentary on every mission as you know he has his style it's different than the bartonura Although the Bartonor did use him. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, It has a funny style. But remember, the guy's writing is 22 years old, 25 years old. I mean, remember that. And here and there, you see that the Rambam, in addition to being a master of halacha and a master of shahs, I repeat again, in the 20s, he's a master of And remember, Kutchum tires the whole business. I mean, here's a guy, not even 30 years old, who writes that intro to Taharis, which is crazy, you know. I mean, you know, you got to, you got to keep so much information in the head. And he says every day, he says, oh, you want to understand Tyrus? Just memorize this essay I wrote. You know, then you'll hop around Tyrus. I mean, he was a genius. Okay, I mean, obviously. Obviously. So having said all that, uh, whenever it came to theological questions, which obviously fascinated him, uh, Rambam includes a number of essays, uh, meaning... We get to a Mishnah, he says, now we're the subject, I'd like to say a few words. And he goes on and on sometimes. Uh, there are several examples of this. As I said before, the intro to Taharis, which is a whole essay by itself. The intro to Kachim, which is shorter, but again, an essay by itself. And for our, and the intro to the Mishnah itself, which is an essay by itself. Which he it does in another form, a shorter form in the, the, to the Mishnah Torah, you know, the intro to the Mishnah Torah. It's interesting to compare the long intro to the Mishnah, on one hand, or Shas, versus the, the introduction in Hebrew to the Mishnah Torah. And the one I'm talking about, of course, that's negated to us, is the intro to Per-Khalik. because the Mishnah says, So all of a sudden you find in the Mishnah the language itself, you notice know, it's in this basic text of the Mishnah before the Gemara, Something called Olam ball You see, that's what I'm trying to show you where the Rambam is coming from. In Olam ball <coughs> Hi. Um, you know, I was interrupted yesterday at this point because Shabbos was coming. Now it's late Saturday night. Let me see if I can pick this up or at least uh, carry the ball forward. So if I remember, I was talking about the fact that the Rambam, <coughs> when he writes his Pierce Mishnais, comes across the fact that it's Olam Haba is stated explicitly in the Mishka once, I think. And that's As a result, he wrote a long essay on this subject, in which he exactly is preoccupied with this the fancy question: what is the Summon bone? What's what's it all about, Alfie? Right? And he said, and he's quite aware. <clears throat> now remember, this is around him reading Mishnah and Pesh Mishnais. so he's still living for the most part in uh, a Morano, you know, all the way in Morocco. <clears throat> <clears throat> in those places in the western Africa, western North Africa, and he says that, uh, <laughs> what does that mean? Right? and and this long essay, which is called <laughs> because it's not really a <laughs> document it's it's part of his commentary on the Mishnah. But every once in a while, he does these long essays on, on things that preoccupied him. Uh, and usually when there's a lack of Clark height, like for example, the introduction to Tahris, who has clear clarity on Tahris? You know what I mean? So Ramam says, I'll make it clear. You know, it's so the same thing. Who has clarity when it comes to all these the fancy questions, uh, life after death? Yeah, no heaven, hell this, that's harmonious. You know, what is it? And he says, I'll give you clarity. And he wrote it in Arabic. Of course, we have the translations, various translations, <coughs> The one I like, I don't know if it's the best, is the one I have part of my Rambam La'am series. And he said, because it has a kati at the bottom, and uh, that kind of uh, uh, commentary. And he says, uh, that I want to speak about things that are very, very chashev, extremely chashev, but unclear, because bali Torah nechlu Even the Bali Torah, even the Talmud HaChacham who are from Jews and this and that and the other but they lack clarity on what is the summum bonum. what do you get for keeping the mitzvahs and what do you get punished for the Averis Machlokos Rabos Ma'od Now here's the Rambam writing in the 1100s in the middle of the 1100s and he's saying, you know Machlokos Rabos Ma'od Right? So they're all over the place in this sort of thing so that's why it was just intriguing to me when I was asked to start a series on this because there's a history to the fact that there was no history that was confusing. <clears throat> and there are a lot of mistakes and mess-ups out there. You know, there's a lot of things that people get wrong when it comes to the question of it. <clears throat> you won't find anybody's got clarity on this. Now, I don't know how the Rambam, writing in his 20s, Oh, and as a Murano, far away from everybody else. I mean, how did he know that? But I guess from all the Svarm he had that he read secretly, whatever, nobody has clarity on this. You can't find any <coughs> clarity except if people just make an assertion, even though it's wrong. <coughs> and then he gives this famous description of the different opinions out there, which are pretty much the same opinions that are out there now. Katri Shona. One group, a Kati calls it like a sect, a group. If you ask them atovi what does that mean? That if you do a mitzvahs and you live a good life, you get rewarded with Gun Okay? What's shot Gun Who It's like a certain uh you know, uh wine, women and song situation. It's a Disneyland. You get into heaven and it's like a, and you live forever in Disneyland. It's a place, Ochlin, but you eat and you drink, and you never get fat. And I believe I'm a goofy enough to work at for it. And houses are made out of diamonds. And the beds are made out of the choicest silk. When the heart is motionless, and the rivers have all the good drinks, like we, say today, like we say today, all the booze you want is free. And the good stuff. And similar things. <coughs> See, the Ramah is too delicate to get into the Islamic business with the virgins and all that. Uh, and <coughs> <So> that's heaven. What's it's a big fire. They burn people there. And there are long descriptions about how people are tortured in the fires and so forth. And here's the point. Maybe <coughs> Raya these people are Tamil Kachum who make this assertion that the summum bonum is heaven and hell in this in almost almost like a physical sense, sort of. And um and the and the punishments and the and the pleasures are kind of material, even if they're not exactly in the physical sort. Uh, and they bring rayas from uh chazals. No, there are some chazals like that, who micro- and they can bring psukim even from Tanakh, which agree with these kind of statements somewhat, you know, all of it a part of it. You know, in other words, you can find psukim that describe heaven as a Disneyland, you know, as a kind of a, a you know, a paradise in that way. That's one group. The So, in other words, so when these people who are from Jews <clears throat> when they lived a good life and they do, and they put on filling every day and they keep mitzvahs and they don't say Loshanara, and they hope to get into the pie in the sky, you know, the 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 uh eternal Disneyland, okay? The another group thinks, <clears throat> That the final goal is the summon bonum is not Gan Eden, that they either get into Gan Eden where you get into hell, but ra- and Ganein is a pleasure park. But rather, the second group, if you ask them, says that the final goal is not Ganein, but Yemosa Mashiach. That's the goal. If you live a good life, you'll get to Yemosa Mashiach. go. It may come soon. What <clears throat> What what's this, these people? They're not so gross. Yubenei uh, Odom malachim, Right? Everybody will be angelic. Ka become lot immortal, Yebu Kusum will all be tall, tall, dark, and handsome, not short, ugly, and fat as we are now and and will fill the world with human beings like this, in other words, the human race will be superior, Osshiach will be eternal and immortal, Osium Totse maruchm, and again just a little bit of Disneyland, the earth <coughs> will grow magically, uh aruchim clothes. They'll grow in the trees, and baked bread, and those other things that are obviously impossible and now, I always laugh when I see this because the Rambam lived in the twelfth century he said it's ridiculous you can walk into a store and there's already ready made clothes that's that's beyond mich of course we have that <laughs> you know uh you walk into a store there's ready made bread and food and this that, and the other. boy, he never saw a, a copy of the of the Mishpachar, the and, the and and the advertisements there. You know, uh, what people dreamed about, and the Ramam says is beyond possibility, is Pasha today. And the punishment for not living a good life is not being part of that party, that glorious party. You get cut out. Everybody else has a good old time, and you not. And again, they can bring riots, he says, from psukim uh, and things like that. The Psukimah sound like that. But Kaddash talk show there's a third group that says that the Summum Bonum is not the uh, Ganadin, and the Summum is not the Moshe when the human race will live gl- more gloriously than present, but rather it is Trias The Summum Bonum is the Trias resurrection. You hear it's not the Moshe and it's not the highest thing is Ganadin, but it's rather Trias uh, Mason. That you'll come back after you're dead and get go to all your relatives, assuming you want to do that. and you'll live forever. You'll be immortal. Immortality is the sum and bonum. And if you live a bad life and you get punished, you won't. That's all. You die and you never come back. And they can bring rise from sukim, he said, from chazals and sukim and things like that. Now, there's five of these all together. So we have the first one who says that the son of B'anam is Ganadin. We have a second one who says that the son of B'anam is Yimose Mashiach. And now we did the third one who said the son of B'anam is But Amesim. Bekadaravi Tasha, is Tashav, the fourth one that tells you, if you talk to them, that uh, what's the reward for living a good life and doing the mitzvah? You get rewarded the good life in this life. If you live a good life, you may merit that you'll hit the time of history when, you know, you'll you'll, you'll I mean, you'll have prosperity now in this world. Um uh, Shumanarotas, Ram, you'll be prosperous. Rovanam, you have a lot of children. Urchyon Briasagov, you'll have your health, Shalom Bitochem. Melchem Yisrael will have Mashiach time in the sense we'll have a Jewish state. From, Yosef and anybody who wants to bother us will dominate them. Meaning, you'll you'll have a world, as we would say today, without anti-Semitism, or at least without Jewish helplessness. And the punishment for not keeping the good life is what we already experience, he says. That we don't have security, and, and there's always anti-Semitism, and the Iranians want to blow us up, and Hitler, and all that. And they can bring riots also, he says, from the Tocha and other places. And then, B'Kad harbi, most people make a cholent of all these. That if you live the good life, you get to see Moshe Mashiach, Tchiyas you get into Eden, where it's a Disneyland, and you'll also be healthy and have a prosperous life, and so on and so forth. Notice, however, the Rambam points out, none of these mention Olam haba. We heard of Ganadin, we heard of Moshe Mashiach, we heard of Tchiyas HaMesim, Right? We heard of prosperity in this world. What about Olam Haba? Which the Mishnah talks about. Nobody talks about Olam Haba. He says, Do you notice that? Okay? Very few people are on that rigorously. What's the definition of the term Olam Haba? Is it the the final goal or a step on the way to the final goal? Or do we make distinctions between the final goal and steps on the way to the final goal? Instead, he says, well, people want to know our dumb questions, which is when the dead come back, will they be naked? Or uh, will you recognize them? And will they be rich and poor in time of Mashiach and things like that? So this whole introduction I read you is the Rambam's way of saying that the question is not even asked. The question that generated this series is the fancy question, which is, What's the final goal? Uh, and past all these other things, which is Olam Haba, you know, what is it? Okay? Is it physical? Is it not physical? Is it real? Is it imaginary? And in order to explain this, the Rambab famously says that you have to understand it's not physical. Um, meaning, and he starts his famous thing. I know I've said this before, that... Uh, what you have to understand is something that's usually uh, not understood by people, except without a great deal of introspection. And he gives a famous example. Suppose you tell a child, "Nar Think about the following mashal: You take a child and bring him in first grade to the rabbi or kindergarten, or whatever, and, you t- and the and the rabbi is going to teach him or start to teach him the Torah. And knowing the Torah is the most devout thing that the kid can get in terms of ultimate shlamus. We all agree with that. But the kid, being young, doesn't understand that. And therefore, what does the Rebbe say? If you can read the Aleph base correctly, I'll give you a candy. Eggos. I'll give you a candy. to him whatever they used in those days. And the kid plugs away in order to get the candy. I know that today in the. Uh, Day schools and yeshivas and all that, you know, you learn so and somebody. many blot, you get to see him, or you get the money, or you get this, that, and the other. So the kid's doing it for the money, you see? Uh, and he says, when a little bit older and the candy doesn't do the trick, you problem new shoes. Uh, and when he gets a little bit older than that, uh, you give him cash. And when he gets older than that, you know, Dinar doesn't do it anymore, then you give him covet. You know, that's. That's a biggie. Oh, learn away. And uh, you know this Masech, that Masech, you get a lot of cover. you be chush today to say, I guess, get a good shidduch, you know? Uh, or whatever. Something like that. And so the person is studying away for the cover. you would be a big rabbi, like so-and-so and such-and-such. He, he uses that language. He says, b'nei v'yakum <speaking in Spanish> you'll be famous, and people stand up when you walk in the room. It's a covered thing, right? And the point is, it's all shaloh l'shma. Bechol maguna, It's all ugly in the higher epistemological sense. But it works. Okay? And therefore you can do shaloh l'shma nor do l'shma. Um, but really, 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 a person should only learn the Torah for lishma, which means just because the, the truth. That's his famous old essay over there. Okay? Now, um, but of course, people aren't built that way, so therefore you tell somebody, do it for ulterior reasons. Now... <coughs> Um, the reason he's saying this is because now you're asking a question, what do I gain? What's the final goal if I do the mitzvahs? So really, from a philosophical point of view, and here he's taking the Greek philosophy at its best, one person should be interested in the truth just because it's the truth, not because of any side reason. You know, take a researcher in medicine or something like this. He wants to do it because he wants to do it. He wants to know. A scientific researcher... Who's not in it for the money because obviously he could be making more money doing something else in practice. But he wants to end up because it just fascinates him to, you know, advance the cause of science, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. So you're doing Lishma. So the Rambam says that's how it works with the Torah and Yiddishkeit and all that. You do Lishma. Now, having said that, now we try to advance beyond this. Because what do you do at the end of the day with all these different chazals and all these different uh, things in the commission and, 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 and so forth? So here again, the Rambam. Lays out, and it's very interesting. He was young when he was doing it, and he says, "You know, we have a us, but the question is, and the us will describe heaven and hell. There certainly are plenty of psukim and a Gadotos which describe heaven and hell. In fact, the very word Gehenim is really uh, a descriptive word because Gabe Ben Hinom, You know, there was a, there was a valley in ancient Jerusalem that they used to burn people when they did the Eved So that's why they use it as a metaphor for hell. Uh, heaven, hell are not physical." But they're going to use, as I said before, you know, metaphors for that kind of thing in order to get the point across. So you see how he's thinking? It's, uh, it's He's thinking philosophically in the best sense of the word when you're talking about these kinds of issues. Okay? When you're talking about these kinds of issues. Now, um, I hope I haven't, um, what's the right word, I've gotten you confused. But I don't think so. Uh, but the point is, and he says very famously, this is a very good essay to realize. If you're from, so the question becomes, how literal do you take the Chazals? Now, he says there are three types of people. It becomes Chazal. Some take everything literally. Some think the Chazal. Some take everything literally and believe everything literally, uh, even though that's stupid. They And they do so for frumkite reasons, because they say, if they say it, you know, it's there. A guy came to me tonight, and he said, I mentioned something about Rav Shach moving to Israel, I think in 1940, I believe I'm right about that, in my speech tonight. And he said, oh, you're wrong. Rabbi so-and-so told me that Roshach taught him in uh, in Eastern Europe in Pinsk, well, I don't know, after the war, uh, you know, uh, in, in the yeshiva there. And I said, look, I don't know, but I knew Roshach moved to Israel in 1940. No, no, Rabbi so-and-so told me. So I said to him, how could that be? For this reason, that reason, he I don't know, but that, that's what the guy told me. So that's what I believe. You see? So in other words, something that was counterintuitive, but didn't matter. You understand? Because he believed, you know, what he wanted. He, he, he thought he's doing him a favor, so to speak. He thought he's doing him a favor by, by taking him literally. So same thing over here. People can read in the Gemara, the moon jumped over the spoon, and they said, well, if the Chazal said it, it's true, the Ramah says that's ridiculous. And then there are other people who say the Chazal meant it literally because the Chazal were stupid. And he said, that's also ridiculous. LMI, it's got to be that, you know, um, that they're using mushals. That is to say, the Chazal have profound meaning in it. it, doesn't have to be literal. So it's like a forerunner of the morale, you might say. It doesn't have to be literal, but it's very profound. And um, the key point is that they have no choice but to describe heaven and hell and the summon bonum in some kind of physical way, because there's no other way to express things to people, even though it's not literally true. Even though it's not literally true. So when you're in heaven, you don't sit with a crown on your head, but that doesn't mean it's stupid. There's some meaning to the idea you sin at Taurus, you know, Baruch And he goes on to describe, although not very clearly, in my opinion, okay, not very clearly, um, the idea that you have something, um, what's the word, non-physical, metaphysical, but it's very real. Okay, very real, and you know he's he's eloquent in it, but he, he 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 done, but he's trying to get across to the to the listener that to say that there's a ruchnius teinig, a non-physical, uh, positive ex- pleasant experience pleasure, to what's coming for the righteous, but not being able to explain it in a way that makes sense. well, that's a function of language, and it's a function of the fact that we don't know yet. Okay? As he says, a fish can't understand what it's like to be outside the sea. You know, Can't understand it. But it's going to be good. right? Now he went on to talk about other things over here, which has to do with Gan Eden, which he thinks is a place, and Chiesa Mesim and all the rest of it. But the bottom line is that the Rambam is going to tell you that if you want to know what the final good is, it's very good, but I can't explain it, except by using much of which are not accurate. Because mushles, by definition, can be accurate. And so we now begin to enter the philosophical, explicitly philosophical discussion of what's the summum bonum, which is something that the Rambam clearly, as a writer here, is afraid that will not appeal to the average jewel. Say, if that's all it is, then what's the point? And he's trying to assure him, believe me, the kind of pleasure, even though it's of a completely different quality, do you get for as a final reward, is something you want. I can't explain in physical terms, and it might seem not interesting to you since you only can understand schar in physical terms, but I assure you, he says, you want it. okay? But beyond that, you can't explain it. So that I, I understand what he means. At least I flatter myself, I do. And probably many of you do, but probably many of you do not. And it's hard to get a handle on the idea that there's some bliss or something like that. I repeat, something like that that lies at the end of the road for those who are good, but you can't exactly explain it because it's beyond the human experience. Uh, usually people don't like to hear that kind of art. That is how the Rambam pretty much lays it out in this uh and I'm not doing the whole thing, obviously, but that's his that's key point. The Ulam Haba is this final state uh, which is past all the others in which the person lives in this uh, kind of a spiritual kind of way. Um, A spiritual kind of way. But the word spiritual is not right either. No word does it justice. So, as I say, a philosopher nods and says, Oh, very good. I like that. No word does it justice. Very good. But a non-philosopher is says, So what is it? What is it? And here the Ramab doesn't exactly explain it. If anything, he got into trouble by some Frumis, Because they said, what do you mean it's all spiritual? What about the fact that we believe in Chis HaMesim? And and isn't that how Olam Haba works out? And he had to go explain himself later in some greater detail. Um, I'll save that for the next time, because I think I went a little bit too long now. But like I say, I started this out on Friday afternoon. I'm finishing up on Saturday night uh, of Hanukkah. So let me uh, conclude here by having started the discussion of the Rambam's approach which is the philosophical approach the theological approach to the question of all questions which he himself says is the question of all questions um, but which as is often the case you raise a question you can't give a good answer if by good answer you want something people would say ah very nice it's not of that quality of question even though it's the ultimate thing because otherwise why are you doing what you're doing Uh, I hope I made myself clear uh And I'll pick this up next time. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.